Good morning. So good to see you all. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Luke 7 and keep it there open because we're going to be flipping around in, in the book of Luke. I am Lynn Kitchens, and I'm so happy to be here with you today. And there truly is no other place I would rather be, no other people I'd rather be with. Um, but I, I will say I can't believe that summer is over. And uh, so I brought a couple of summer photos. Uh, we went to visit my parents in Michigan, and we went looking for Sasquatch. Some of you know him as Bigfoot. And we found him. <laughs> he and Ted got to be really good friends. <laughs> and uh, then Ted, something, Ted said something that we think it offended him, and so he decided it was time to get out of there. Uh, he was going <laughs> to... This is Michigan for you. You're driving around for hours in the rural forest, and you come across a home that has a Sasquatch statue out in the front. So we just jumped out and took pictures. <laughs> okay, but here's the best thing that happened early this summer. My wonderful son, Tyler, married his love, Katie. And uh, those of you who have been around Christ Chapel a long time know that from the time he was little, Tyler walked his own path when it came to what he wore for clothes. You can see that was still true on that day, but he still looked handsome and... Uh, he was very happy. A lot of you did this with your kids when you were young. Uh, Tyler and I, when he was little, we would dance a lot in the kitchen together, and he would stand on my feet. You know how you did that. And uh, so we're in the middle of the mother-son dance, and Tyler looks at me and says, you should be standing on my feet. <laughs> how did I finish dancing? I don't know. Somehow I did. Uh, I looked up, though, and Ted was crying, and our daughter Cassie was crying. I had prayed, and I'd hoped that God would find a special wife for Tyler. And I want to talk about hope today in our lives. In the dictionary, it's defined to look forward to something with confidence and with expectations. And as believers in a good and a great God that we remind ourselves every week here, we should expect, have confidence that good and great things will happen in our life. And I don't mean material things. I don't mean getting everything we want. I mean inner things, peace, joy, provision from God. Of all people, Christians should be a people that demonstrate hope into the world because we live with God at our side and we expect his word to be proven true in our lives. And what we forget is that our level of hope determines how we do life. When hope is alive in our hearts, we have joy, we have peace, people see us as optimists. When hope is not a part of our daily lives, we become people of fear, people of sadness. We're known to be pessimistic. These are people that worry a lot, stress a lot, expect the worst, fear a lot. 
These are people who live their lives in a spiritual wilderness, unable to live and really hold on to the abundant life that God has designed for us to live. Um, I read this fun story about the hopeless story of Noah. The Lord said unto Noah, Where is the ark which I have commanded thee to build? And Noah said to the Lord, Verily I have had three carpenters off ill. The gopher wood supplier hath let me down. Yea, even though the gopher wood hath been on order for high upon twelve months. What can I do, O Lord? And God said to Noah, I want that ark finished even after seven days and seven nights. And Noah said, It will be so. And it was not so. And the Lord said unto Noah, What seemeth to be the trouble this time? And Noah said unto the Lord, Mine subcontractor hath gone bankrupt. The plumber hath gone on strike. Shem, my son, who helpeth me on the ark, he hath formed a rock group with his brothers. (laughs) Ham and Japheth. Lord, I am undone. And the Lord grew angry and said, And what about the animals? And Noah said, They've been delivered unto the wrong address, but they should arrive on Friday. And the Lord said, how about the unicorns and the fowls of the air by sevens? And Noah wrung his hands and wept, saying, Lord, unicorns are a discontinued line. Thou canst not get them for love or money. And fowls of the air are sold only in half dozens. Lord, Lord, thou knowest how it is. And the Lord said in his wisdom, Noah, my son, I knowest. Why else dost thou think I have caused a flood to descend upon the earth? Noah was hopeless in this situation. That's what happens when we don't have the hope of God. We don't really get much done for God. Here's something true about hope. Hope holds hands with two amazing friends, faith and love, on your verse sheet. Now these three remain Faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. And I have to say to myself, whoa, I forgot. Hope is right up there with faith and love. That's how important it is. It should make us remember that it has divine power and divine potential to make our lives fuller. In our lesson today, we saw that Israel needed hope. Their spiritual lives lacked what hope is, confidence and expectation. They were lacking those things spiritually. And so here is what God graciously sent to Israel. This is the hope of Israel. This is kind of a scary picture. It was a guy named John. He lived in the desert. Matthew tells us he wore a camel hair coat. He ate locusts and honey. I don't know what he's carrying in that big white thing. Looks like a goat head or something with him. I read actually one commentary that said, John's camel coat may have been practical and long-wearing, but it was far from being fashionable. (laughs) You think? Did we need to think it was fashionable? Did we need a commentary to tell us that? Okay, just to clarify, John was not one of the 12 disciples, and John was not a Baptist. They weren't around yet. There was not a Baptist church on the corner in Jerusalem. We should have called John, John the baptizer. He baptized people. That's what he did. This is a man who God sent to Israel to provide hope in the middle of their spiritual wilderness. 
how could this guy do that? He had a voice that he used to share the good news of God and God's promises. And he would call out to Israel, God has not forgotten you. The Messiah is coming. God can deliver you. God can restore Israel. These were his words of hope. And I want us to be reminded why Israel needed that hope. We're going to do a real quick walk through the history of Israel. It'll be a miracle. In the Old Testament, we're going to start. We know that God set his love on Israel, called Israel to be a holy nation. We know that God provided leaders. We know he provided judges, kings, miracles in the Old Testament to teach his ways and his word. And we know that Israel strayed from God and is leading and his leaders. We know this because they separated into two kingdoms. Not God's plan at all. And because of this, we know that many of them lost their identity as God's children. They married pagan wives. They adopted pagan ways. They adopted pagan gods. They were in a spiritual wilderness wandering. And then came the prophet Malachi. The last prophet in the Old Testament. The last book in the Old Testament. He called out for Israel to repent. Return to the one true God. But we get a picture of a nation where many Jews were still immersed in sin. And here's what I love. Even in the midst of their sin. In the middle of their wanderings, God gives them words of hope through the book of Malachi. Look at Malachi 1 on your verse sheet. God says, see, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Hope would come in the form of two messengers. The first messenger would prepare the way for the promised Messiah who was promised throughout uh, the Old Testament to restore Israel. And the second messenger would be the Messiah himself coming suddenly into his temple, a messenger of the covenant of God's plans and God's blessings on the nation Israel. And remember, when did, when did Jesus first arrive suddenly and unannounced to the temple? A baby in the arms of his mother. That was the first time this verse uh, came true. Jesus later identifies that it's his cousin John who was the first messenger. Look at verse 27 in chapter 7 of Luke. This is Jesus speaking. He says, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way before you. And Isaiah talked a lot about the forerunner to Jesus, the one who would come before Jesus. And Luke lets us know John the Baptist fulfilled that as well. Turn to Luke 3. Verse 2. 
During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. Old Testament ends with these words of hope from the prophet Malachi. Now we have the intertestamental period, which is a big word. I feel very important saying it. Intertestamental period. After Malachi's prophecies, the Old Testament closes and no word from God. For 400 years, between Malachi and Matthew, 400 years, people call that the silent years, even though God was at work. What were the spiritual wanderings of Israel during this time, this 400 years? Well, the control of the land of Israel got passed around from Persia to the Greek Empire and then to Rome. Rome would be on the scene when Jesus arrived. The Jews, of course, then were spread across the land under each of these empires. They became citizens of other cultures. Greek became their language. Spiritually, Israel became tolerant of the pagan ways of the cultures around them. And then some of the Jews began to realize it's because we have lost sight of the words of God. And scribes began to copy um, the words of God, which was a great thing. But then... The pious began to add to the words of God and pass on oral traditions that they spoke about God. Uh, They were more concerned with the law of God than the will of God. They lost the true message of God's word. And this is when the Pharisees were born. This was them. At the same time, the Sadducees were coming to power in Palestine. Both of these groups became the religious leaders of Israel. Pharisees, Sadducees. Pharisees sought to control God's people by legalism. Sadducees sought to control God's people by liberalism. They didn't believe the prophets. They only believed the first five books they called the Torah of the Old Testament. And the Sadducees didn't believe in anything supernatural, especially resurrecting from the dead. Also during this time, there was a new kind of face on the high priests of Israel. God, we've studied this if you've been in Women in the Word a while. That position of high priest was a spiritually honored and holy position. You had to come from the line of Aaron, who was Moses' brother. But at this time in the history of Israel, the high priest was chosen by their political position their political influence, and the king of the Jews during this time was not one who followed God's ways or even the Jewish ways. They followed their own ways and the ways of the culture around them. They were chosen by the authorities in power at the time of Christ. That would be the Roman authorities. This brings us then to the New Testament. At the end of the 400 years... And we look in the book of Matthew, sitting on the throne of the king of the Jews, was a man who liked to call himself Herod the Great. He was devoted to the Greek lifestyle, which was very external, 
pleasure-seeking. He murdered his wife and his two sons because he got a little nervous about his throne. And then at the birth of Jesus, he would murder all the young boys under the age of two in the town of Bethlehem, worried about his throne and his power. Would you say that Israel was a nation in a spiritual wilderness? Under Roman rule, under an evil king, influenced by godless nations, spiritually led by corrupt high priests and self-righteous religious leaders, Israel had a history of being spiritually lost. But God would not abandon them. He had a covenant with Israel. Galatians 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights as sons. I love that phrase. When the time had come. This was the time in Israel's history for Jesus to enter into their lives. The forerunner, though, had to come first. John needed to bring hope that this was going to happen. He needed to prepare the people. So they heard him. He's coming. Repent. Turn away from your sins and you can be forgiven. God will be with you. God will be with Israel. Let's remember what angel, uh, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, John's father, about his son. Flip back with me to John 1, I mean Luke 1, verse 14. Here's what Gabriel said to Zechariah. Your son will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Just that one verse. You know what you realize? That John's life was not his own. In this verse, we realize John will never be about John. Just from this, he's going to be a joy and delight to his parents. Many will rejoice because of him, and God will see him great. John's power also would not be his own to use. Look at the next verse. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. John would minister on this earth by the power of the Holy Spirit. He would set aside anything that might interfere with that, including wine and fermented drink. And I love that it says the Spirit was on him so early. It literally means from his mother's womb. The Spirit was upon John. And when it was time for his ministry to begin, the Spirit, the Word of God, came to John and called him out to start spreading that hope all around in the Jordan Valley. It says, we read earlier, the word of God came to John. And this is the way prophets got their messages. John was a true prophet. 400 years of silence. And then John, a true prophet. But we realize John's plans were not his own to make. Look at verse 16. Many of the people of Israel, he will bring back to the Lord their God and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was going to be what he did. I don't ever see John and his parents sitting at a kitchen table and them looking across the table and say, John, what do you want to do when you grow up? 
didn't happen. They already knew what he was going to do. God had already told them what he would be when he grew up. Malachi and Isaiah had already told them what he would be when he grew up. Gabriel had already told them what John would be when he grew up. But I had to stop and think, what about John? I mean, what would you think if you were hearing these things your whole life? I mean, oh, you don't get to go to the dance with your friends. You'll be in the desert with a camel. And later you're going to wear it. Uh, <laughs> You know, I really think John never made any other plans. Amazing. I think he accepted what God had called him to do. He stayed committed to it. We can see this by the fact that he chose to live like Elijah. He went out to the desert where God spoke with the prophets, where Elijah had ministry. And he waited there because Elijah had a passion to turn the people's hearts back to God. And that's what John wanted to do. And so he waited there on God. Luke 180 tells us this. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the desert until he appeared publicly to Israel. So here's what God was preparing him to do. Two things. Bring God's people back to God, prepare God's people to receive the arrival of the coming of Messiah. How would he do that? He was a preacher and he was a baptizer. He preached boldly. He baptized boldly. We read earlier how um, that prophecy that God's messenger would make the rough ground level and the rugged places into a plain. And uh, that's confusing. Here's what that means. In the east, if a king was taking a journey and he was traveling somewhere, first he would send servants out ahead of him to clear the path of all obstacles. So you can imagine back then they didn't have what we have today as far as our roads go. So there might be a boulder in the middle of the road, rocks, debris. The roads were hilly. They were uneven. They were crooked sort of like my driveway was until a few years ago. Those of you who have been in my house know what I mean. So servants were sent ahead to get rid of those obstacles and the road, make those crooked roads straight for the king, make the hills level so the king can come. That's John's assignment, because the king of kings is coming. So he preached to the people, Remove the obstacles of sin that are in your heart so that your crooked lives will become straight, so that your bumpy paths will become smooth, so that your hearts are humbled and cleansed and forgiven. Get rid of those obstacles in your lives by repenting from your sins, which means to turn away. Prepare yourself. For God, And I think this is what Zechariah prophesied about his son as well. After John uh, was born and Zechariah could speak again. Go back to chapter 1, verse 76. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. This was his job. How would people be able to demonstrate that they had done this? That they turned away from sin and turned to God? They did it 
by going to John and the Jordan River and being baptized. Now, uh, John's baptism was only an outward sign of something that inwardly had happened in their hearts. What did this baptism look like? This was pretty shocking for the Jews, the baptism of John. And it was very humbling. During this time in Israel's history, the Jews used baptism to baptize proselytes, Gentiles who were converting to Judaism, Gentiles who decided these gods are not gods at all. I believe in the one true God, the God of Israel. And so they were baptized. Also because how did the Jews see the Gentiles? Very unclean. So we got to wash them, purify them before they can come into our faith. What was humbling for the Jews now was that John was applying the same practice to them. Descendants of Abraham, Jewish. That lets you know the sincerity of the people who turned from their sins. That they were actually identifying with the Gentiles' same predicament. We are as big a sinners as the Gentiles. We need to be cleansed. We need to be forgiven. There were some Jews that couldn't accept that. Turn to Luke 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. These were the pious Jews that were coming to him. Maybe just to kind of be seen, be in the right place. John was kind of a hot item at the time. Um, And many were Pharisees and Sadducees. We know that from Matthew. And they believed their spiritual heritage gave them a special place in God's heart. They didn't have anything to repent of. John lets them know, really gently, this is not true. God is looking for the humble heart, and the heart that is not humble and seeking repentance. Um, The judge is ready to strike his axe, his divine axe, on that individual. And anyone who doesn't bear fruit that demonstrates they've really repented is also in line for judgment. Now, I love that the Bible lets us know there was a crowd of people there, and he singles out two people groups tax collectors and soldiers. People hated both of those groups of people. Mostly because tax collectors were big cheats and pocketed half the money that they said you owed uh, the state. Soldiers also had issues with money. And I love it that they're the ones coming to repent. And we hear them after they've been baptized saying, what do we do next? What should we do? How do we show fruits? And John, you read in your homework, tells them about being generous and kind and showing mercy to people. And do we see the Pharisees and Sadducees saying that? No. We can see the true repentance of the rest of the crowd. So John fulfilled his ministry of hope by preaching, by baptizing. He delivered a radical message 
of repentance. His courage was phenomenal. The crowds flocked to him to be a part of his ministry. Lives were brought back to God. But when they tried to exalt John to figure out who he was, tried to make him more than he was, he simply called himself a voice. I'm just a voice for God to be able to speak to you, Israel, whom he loves. He was humble. But Jesus had some more things to say about his cousin. Turn back to chapter 7. Verse 24. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it's written, I will send my messenger ahead of you. And I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What does that mean, he's not a reed? It means he wasn't wishy-washy. He was strong. He knew He had a conviction, he had a passion, and no one was going to turn him from the ministry of hope that God had given him to do. He was a prophet. He stood tall and strong in the desert and in the lives of Israel. And people still, because he was so great, they began to wonder, could he be the Messiah? John's pretty neat. Lots of power. Lots of spirit around John. Maybe that's him. But John's greatest privilege, really, in his life was that he was going to be able to introduce the Messiah to the world. He would do that at his baptism. But first he wants to answer all these things they're saying. He wants to set the record straight. So go back to chapter 3. Verse 15, the people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Okay, circle good news. Because sometimes when we picture John, we only think of him with this mean, angry face, pointing fingers. He loved sharing the good news of God's promises and the coming Messiah. That was good news to Israel. John makes two points in these verses. I am inferior to Christ, and my baptism is inferior to Christ's baptism. And he uses this phrase to prove it. I am unworthy to untie the thongs of Christ's sandals. And the people would know what he meant by that. Because here's what was happening in Israel at that time. Jewish teachers were not paid by their students. So their students would do acts of service to show their appreciation to their teacher. But there was a rabbinic saying that went like this. 
Every service that a slave performs for his master is what a student should do for his teacher, except the loosing of his sandal ties, because even that is too degrading for a student to do on someone else. John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. That's how humble he was. He says the Messiah will baptize with spirit and fire. What does that mean? Well, Jesus will have the authority to indwell people with the spirit. This will happen at Pentecost in the book of Acts. Baptizing them with the spirit. And he also will have the authority to judge an individual. And that's represented by fire. So one day we see John. He's baptizing in the Jordan River. This is one of my favorite stories. (laughs) He looks up. And there comes a man. And John stops what he's doing. I hope he didn't drop the person in the river. And he stands up and he looks. And God lets him know as this man Jesus approaches him, there he is. And John gets to do his greatest privilege. He introduces the world to its Savior, the hope of all hopes. And the book of John tells us, he says, The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is the one I've been talking about. This is the one when I said someone is coming after me who has surpassed me because he existed before I existed. I didn't know him, John said. But for this reason I came with baptizing so that he could be revealed to Israel. I didn't know him. I hadn't seen him. Now I've seen him and I testify this is the Son of God. What a privilege. The beginning of the Messiah's ministry. I thought about this. Remember when the religious leaders came to John to be baptized, John exposes their sins. When Jesus comes to be baptized, John's sins are exposed. He becomes aware of his sinfulness. Matthew tells us that he says, Oh, I don't want to baptize you. You baptize me. But Jesus has a talk with him. John realizes this is God's will. And he baptizes Jesus um, because Jesus needed to be identified with mankind that he came to save. And this was a special commissioning and anointing by the Spirit for Jesus to begin his ministry. Look at Luke 3.21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love with you. I am well pleased. The other gospels tell us. John saw the dove. He saw the dove. So John witnessed the Trinity right before his very eyes. The voice of God. The Son of God. The Spirit of God. In dove form. And when we think about that, as great as that was, as great as John was, as obedient as he was, he still became a little confused about Jesus. When John rebuked uh, the king of the Jews, 
Herod Antipas, this is a new Herod. He was living with his brother's wife, Herodias. Herod and Herodias, they had matching bath towels. Uh, he found himself thrown in prison because he didn't back down. He wasn't a reed. He told them what they were doing was sinful. So he's thrown in prison, and he stayed in prison for two years. We forget that. Two years. And think about it. Um, he had one year only, but one year of this skyrocket ministry, influencing the nation, changing lives, being blessed by God. And now he spends his days looking at four walls, pretty isolated, definitely isolated from what he was doing. And you wonder that he didn't sometimes think, what's going on? If God called me to ministry, why am I stopped here? Why am I in a prison? Why isn't Jesus coming to get me? Is Jesus coming to get me? Where's the kingdom that the Messiah was supposed to establish for Israel? Is that happening? So meanwhile, Jesus is very busy with his ministry, but John wants to be certain, is it the ministry of the Messiah? Or should we keep looking? Look in chapter 7 at verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, oh, by the way, let me say this. John sent some of his disciples to go talk to Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. John, Jesus reminded John's disciples of Isaiah's words about the coming Messiah, that the Messiah would be one who brings great healing, help to the poor. And by Jesus sharing this with John's disciples, he knew that when they came and told this to John, John knew those prophecies from Isaiah. His heart would be encouraged. He would be reassured. So I like knowing that. I like knowing that he got these words from Jesus because we know from Scripture that Herod eventually killed John. He never left prison. Um, but I believe that he died knowing, first of all, I finished the work God called me to do. Secondly, I introduce the world to its Savior. Ready to go be with God. So we have to invite hope on our life journey. Um, I love it that John's voice of hope is still speaking today because we have it preserved in God's word. So John's ministry I can read about and I can still hear him saying God's promises. They're real. God will forgive you. Walk with God. We can still have his ministry in our lives. But you know, I can live my life as if none of that is true at all. 
I might say I believe all these things about God with my mouth, but I don't have to let those truths go down into my heart. I can let my circumstances dictate how I feel about getting out of bed every morning. I can live my life as if I'm hopeless or I can invite hope on my life's journey. And John's story speaks to us about that as well because we saw what John did when hope may have been fading in his heart. And I can let his voice remind me and renew me. We go to the right person and we ask the right questions when we find ourselves in a prison of confusion. We go to the right person, we ask the right questions. When John was imprisoned, he sent others right to Jesus. When we find ourselves in a spiritual wilderness, we have to do the same thing if we want to keep hope alive in our hearts. And all the questions that we want to ask come down really to the question John asked. Are you who I thought you were? When we go to Jesus, To renew our hope. That's our question. Are you who I thought you were? Let Jesus remind you. Let Jesus tell you. Come to him in prayer. Come to him in his word to discover more about who he really is. Because when we live as Christians without much hope, when we walk around sad, when we walk around complaining, when we like to tell people how bad things can be, we are really saying, Jesus really isn't in control. Jesus isn't as big as he says he is. Jesus doesn't care like he said he did. Jesus doesn't have plans. Jesus can't fix this. I've got to. I've got to do it. I'm in control of my life. What kind of hope will we have then? Because can we fix anything in life? No. So we go to Jesus. Now, we don't go to books. We don't go to people first. We can get their counsel later. We don't go to the newest conference. We go first to Jesus. And here's what Jesus will tell us. John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We don't have to go to those other places. Look at Ephesians 2. That's what we used to do. Remember, you once were separate from Christ, foreigners of the covenant of the promise, without hope, without God. Now we have God. Therefore, we have hope. God's hope is in his hand. He's just waiting for us to take it. Look what Psalm 62 says. Find rest, O my soul, in God alone. My hope comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I will not be shaken. And we all can think of details in our life that we want to have worked out in a special way. And does that mean... We have hope that everything will go the way we want it. Does it mean God's going to work out every detail just like we want? No. It means he has a plan. It means Romans 8:28, God will work all things for good for those who are called. That's what it means. 
If Jesus is who he says he is, then I can entrust all the details of my life to him, even when I don't get it. Job 13:15. Job said, "Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him." I read about a um, statue at the Battle of Waterloo that's put up. It's a big, huge bronze statue. It's a lion. It's ferocious. Its mouth is wide open. Its teeth are roll, you know, its lips are rolled back, so you see its teeth. It's a frightening statue. And I read a little story about a man who was there and looked, and there was a little bird just busily building a little nest in the mouth of the lion. So happy. When the nest is done, he just sat in the lion's mouth. That's such peace. That's what hope is. When life looks menacing, when life looks ferocious, this is God's plan for us, to rest in him. Let those things go on around us. Take it to God. Trust that Jesus is who he says he is. Be at peace. Now we know John never got out of prison physically. But you know what life is like without hope? It's a prison emotionally. It's a prison spiritually. And I think John died free from prison. He may have been in prison physically, spiritually, and emotionally. He was not because he had the hope of who Jesus really was. When we live a hopeful life with a heart that believes God, we also have this other wonderful ministry. We don't even know it. Sometimes it happens without us knowing it. We give the gift of hope to others that are journeying alongside of us. I thought about those great disciples of John that John sent to Jesus. Who else was encouraged by the words Jesus shared about, tell John I'm doing this, 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 this? The two guys that came, they were encouraged. They became hopeful. They went back. Their hope spread to John. That's what happens when we're a hopeful people. Our hope becomes someone else's hope. When others look in our wilderness, because all of us go in and out of wildernesses, up and down hills and valleys, and when we're in a hard one, and other Christians look at us, and we are not a reed doing this, but we are like John, tall and strong. What does it do to this person who's been like this? We give each other the gift of hope when we choose to be hopeful. You know, I thought about my dance with Tyler when he would stand on my feet. We need that in each other's lives. Sometimes I need to stand on your feet when my hope is fading and let you do the dance. And your hope will become my hope. And then maybe later you'll need to stand on my feet. Hebrews 3.12 tells us, See to it that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today so none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. So it all comes down to this. Hope indwells the hearts of those who believe that Jesus is who he said he was. And guess what? He said enough to give us enough hope to last through all eternity.
Praise God for that. Let me pray. Lord, uh, you did not leave us to be a sad people, to be a people who fear for the future. You called us to know that you are loving and you are powerful. All things will be made good by you. I pray you teach us to rest in those different circumstances in our lives to go to you with the right question. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. All right, ladies, I have a few announcements before we break for lunch.